The Fanboy, episode 108. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 108 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Me, uh, I've been better. I'll spare you the gory details, but I just haven't been in a great headspace as of late. And that's why, you know, at times like these, I, I turn to my pillars, those things that I love, that bring me joy and, and spark my imagination. And I gotta tell you, it's interesting. You know, because at dark, personal times like these, I'm reminded of why fandom exists to begin with. Why fandom exists at all. You know, because to be a fan of something is to be excited about something. And to be excited, to be looking forward, to be hopeful that something great is coming, can sometimes be the difference between life and death. To have something you love to, something you love to think about, to anticipate, or to have something that even just puts a smile on your face. It's such a gift. Growing up, these things that I love, these heroes I look up to, these creators I admire and wished to emulate, those moments of escapist bliss I was able to savor while playing with my action figures, watching TV, playing video games, listening to music, reading comic books, or going to the movies, those are the things that helped keep me sane. They kept me hopeful and optimistic that there was a vast greatness waiting out there for me in the world, a world of wonder still awaited that I had to look forward to. You know, my fandom created this well of positivity that I thought I could just, I'd be able to drop a bucket down into and bring back up to drink from its magic whenever I wanted. And even today, you know, when I'm down, I turn to my pillars. My core fandoms, which have been with me all of my life. One is Superman, one is Star Wars, one is Nintendo, and the other is wrestling. You know, those four are the core identifiers in my geek DNA. By the way, have you ever thought about what's in your geek DNA? You know, which properties, characters, creators have been such a staple in your life that you almost think of them as friends of yours or or just, you know, you have them in there as part of your coping mechanism for life. It's interesting to see and acknowledge and honor the impact all of these things we love have on us and the important role they play in, in keeping our heads on straight. You know, so I, I had to turn to those this week. I, I, I had to do that because I haven't been feeling so hot. But, you know, thankfully, it's, it's okay because I had them there. I had my imaginary friends, and I also had some wonderful real friends in real life to help me out. And, you know, thankfully, my imaginary friends kept things real interesting this week. Because we got to dive right into our first, you know, the first long form topic of, of, for, of discussion for episode 108 today is the craziness 
that happened with the Arrowverse uh, a Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover and the astoundingly surprising way that it connects back to stuff I was talking about last week on episode 107. Because it's crazy to think. I, I don't know that I could have predicted this, especially since I'm not an Arrowverse person. I don't follow these shows. But I could have never predicted how this crossover event was going to somehow tie in pretty much every corner of live action DC goodness ever has now pretty much been consolidated into one thing thanks to Greg Berlanti and his team. And it's funny to think that you know last week talking about the Flash and Flashpoint and trying to figure out you know the DC landscape and what's to come and what the plan is and how they're developing things. You know, who knew that of all places, the Arrowverse taking the multiverse concept to levels we've never seen before in the mainstream, who knew that the Arrowverse may end up becoming the blueprint that helps kick the doors open, undo some of this confusion about the canon, and literally just kind of give us a DC world where all these heroes can you know, exist at once on their own Earths, in their own dimensions, without really crossing into one another. You know, because, I mean, let's get into it a little bit right now. I mean, this is what we're here for, right? So on the DC crossover, you know, we got glimpses, aside from all the stuff we already know about, right? All, all the other things that they've already woven into the fabric, like bringing in Constantine from the NBC show, like bringing back the CBS version of The Flash to a couple weeks ago when they brought back, you know, Brandon Routh Superman and made it clear that he's supposed to be an extension of the Reeve Superman. So now the Donner continuity was part of it also. And then there was a glimpse of uh, of Titans, what's going on over on the DC Universe app. And then this week, it went even crazier. And if you haven't seen episodes four or five and you intend to, uh, you know, maybe, I guess, spoiler alert, and you may want to jump ahead uh, a few minutes, but, you know, in these last two episodes, we got to see the Doom Patrol and Swamp Thing. And we got to see, and this is the big one, this is the big one, we got to see Ezra Miller's Flash show up and share a scene with Grant Gustin's Flash, who may or may not have given him his name, The Flash, by the way, which is an interesting sort of twist on things. But, folks, they brought the DCEU officially into this into the Arrowverse canon, or rather, you know, now Arrowverse is part of the DCEU canon. However which way you want to look at it, They've come up with a way now that connects absolutely everything. And that's unbelievable. And to explain, you know, some of, of, of why I think the ramifications of this are way bigger than just, oh, okay, they, you know, they, they orchestrated a cute cameo. You know, the reason I, 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 I see this as something bigger that sort of transcends what's happening on the CW and actually crosses over into the DC projects I actually care about you know, in order to understand that, we have to look into some of what's come out in the last couple of days, some of what Greg Berlanti has said in interviews, and some of the news that's hit the web since this came out. And now you'll kind of see why I think this is a really big deal. So Greg Berlanti, in a discussion with Variety, 
was talking about how the Ezra Miller cameo came to be. So check this out. He said, we were series wrapped on Arrow and we were wrapped on the whole crossover. We were in post and some episodes were locked and some were soft locked. I got a phone call from Warner Brothers boss Peter Roth saying, I know you're locked, but can you put Ezra into the crossover? And I said, yes. And he said, how? You're series wrapped and you're wrapped on the crossover. And I said, yeah, I know. But if you're telling me Ezra Miller can be in the crossover, I can make it happen. So let's, let's just kind of start right there for a second, okay? Because you would be forgiven if at first you thought Berlanti contacted, you know, mainline DC Entertainment or Warner Brothers to ask, like, hey, would it be possible for us to get one of your movie stars on our TV show to try to help create a little synergy or just, you know, blow the audience's minds away? Like, you know, I'm sure like that, that's more or less what I thought at first. I'm like, wow. Berlanti pulled this off, but to hear him tell it, he got a call from Warner Brothers, from Peter Roth, who, and this person, you know, Peter Roth asked him if he can put Ezra in the crossover. To me, that tells me that there are some interesting plans for Ezra Miller's Flash and what we were discussing last week about Andy Muschietti saying that this is going to be an adaptation of Flashpoint. You know, it's all kind of starting to make a little more sense. Things are starting to click into place. And then, you know, while on this subject still, Berlanti was speaking with Entertainment Weekly, and he said, I would send drafts of the scene to both Jim Lee and Adam Schlagman of uh, DC Entertainment's, you know, uh, he's the vice president of DC Entertainment Film Division. And um, he said, and we would go, we would just go back and forth. The trick with the scene is that I didn't want to, and they didn't want me, to do anything that stepped on the toes of the Flashpoint movie that they're developing. So we really worked hand in hand. So let's just kind of like listen to those last two sentences. Berlanti, who runs the Arrowverse, and Jim Lee and Adam Schlagman of DC Entertainment worked hand in hand on this scene to make sure that it didn't step on the toes of a Flashpoint movie they're developing. So that confirms what Andy Muschietti said last week. Remember, I was a little bit on the fence about that because all we really had was a, you know, like sort of vague transcription of his remarks that that hashtag show gave us. But here is Berlanti saying it very straightforward to Entertainment Weekly that there is a Flashpoint movie that, that's being developed and this scene had to be written in such a way that it didn't contradict it. So... Holy smokes, you know, this Flashpoint thing, I mean, you got to wonder now, too, if in the Flash movie, they're going to kind of, you know, pay it back a little bit. If at some point when he's in the Speed Force in that movie, maybe we'll see a glimpse of, a glimpse of, of Grant Gustin. I mean, that would be interesting. And now, technically, the door is open for all that. Just like even for those of you who are dying for the Snyder Cut, this is a huge thing also because... The, the the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover has totally kind of kicked the doors open. It's made it seem like there can be an infinite number of versions of these heroes, including by the same actors or by different actors, and it really doesn't, you know, it, it, it's all on the table. 
It's all on the table now that Arrowverse has done what it's done. So that means that if those rumors a while back that the Snyder Cut could become like a miniseries or a two-part event or something on HBO Max, again, now there's a framework to say that that exists, but it doesn't contradict what happens in the movies, just like what happens in the movies doesn't contradict what happens in that little Snyder verse on HBO Max. Let's say, because yeah, that's the thing too. Let's talk about it. If, if somehow, I don't know how I ended up here, by the way, but let's go with it. If somehow the Snyder Cut gets released on HBO Max and does exceedingly well to the point where HBO Max people are like, hey, Snyder, can you, you know, you want to continue to develop some of your ideas, but do them, you know, strictly for HBO Max, make some like TV movies for us or, you know, some sort of Justice League continuation series that you could do here on a, you know, like... If they wanted to do that, now they really have the flexibility to do so. So it's just, it's it's all very, um, it's very eye-opening. It's very cool, by the way, to find out that Jim Lee is this hands-on with what's going on between DC Entertainment's film divisions and TV divisions now. And, you know, I'm still curious where this leaves other people in the mix. But for now, you know, knowing that Jim Lee is apparently there overseeing things, that has to instill confidence, right? It certainly instills confidence in me. So this is just an insane time to be a DC fan because now everything is canon. Because if Ezra Miller's there, that means that Henry Cavill's Superman and Ben Affleck's Batman and everything we saw in those first few movies, that's all technically in there too. Because remember, Ezra Miller also appeared in the Suicide Squad in that same costume, and he's playing that version of The Flash. So this is all the same gigantic universe now, just as it is in the books. Now the multiverse is officially a thing, and it's never ever been done on a scale like this before. And I was super impressed with how they did it too, because remember, I don't watch this, I don't watch any of this Arrowverse stuff, but you know, I popped in for this crossover event. And honestly, I was fast forwarding through certain things in episode five, just to kind of get to the Superman bits I'd heard about. And so I got to the end of the episode and what they do is like, you know, it becomes narration and it becomes this, you know, you kind of, I don't know who that's supposed to be. If some a, a listener out there can let me know who it was that was narrating at the end of episode five, but they did a really nice job of simplifying and explaining how the whole multiverse works by showing all of these different Earths, each with their own number. You know, here's Earth nine, and here's Earth thirty nine, and here's Earth this, and by giving us a glimpse of all the different you know of, of the different heroes that exist on these different Earths. And showing, you know, glimpses of everything from Titans to, you know, Superman flying off old school Christopher Reeve style, looking at the camera as Brandon Routh flies off for possibly the last time ever. You know, it did this really nice way of tying everything together in a way that made it feel cohesive, not overly sci-fi and nerdy to where if you're like an outsider who's more of a casual fan, now you're going, oh, this just got way too geeky for me. Like it really wrapped it up and presented it, I felt, in a way that made it easy to digest, understand, wrap your head around. And now there's going to be that part of you 
that when you see other live-action DC projects, whenever there's a character like The Flash who could, you know, go from universe to universe, from Earth to Earth, now there's going to be this interesting uh, possibility in the background when, the, when sequences like that are, are put together. Because now, thanks to the crisis on infinite Earths, there is a blueprint established that everything we've ever seen on live action from DC is now all canon. It's all together. It can all be pulled from. All you need is just kind of an interesting little story conceit to get to a different Earth, which in comic book movies, that's not that hard to create, you know? And even if you don't want to go that far, even if you want to just treat it like there are a million versions of Earth and we're going to have movies like The Joker that take place on a certain Earth and we're not going to bother to explain to you that this isn't the same Earth as BVS, just like Suicide Squad isn't the same Earth as The Legends of Tomorrow. You know, we may not have to explain all that, but now if we, you know, b between which, what's just happened on the crisis on infinite earths along with whatever they're you know andy muschietti's cooking up with ezra miller's flashpoint movie you know between those two things audiences are now going to have you know they're, they're going to have it they're going to have that seed planted in their mind that i don't need to have things rebooted anymore i don't need to have these things explained to me in a geeky scientific way anymore now, if there's something that just doesn't jive, it's because it takes place in a different universe, and that's fine. There are a million DC universes, and I'm not going to hem and haw about the canon or about how this contradicts something that happened seven movies ago, or why does Wonder Woman act so different and dress so different in Wonder Woman 3 than she did in the first Wonder Woman. We're just going to have to, you know, we're going to accept that there are many versions of these characters and it's more about just enjoying these stories as they go and as they develop, as opposed to having to be slavish followers of a particular shared universe and its, you know, very intricate canon. You know, things have gotten much more simplified now. And I think that's very exciting because, again, with the mindset and the philosophy the DC Entertainment seems to be bringing towards apparently everything now, it means that creators can really be unleashed to create the things that inspire them the most. No creative handcuffs, no, no outside person casting your stars for you and deciding what your stars are going to look and feel like when you finally get to make your movie. No more of that stuff. Now with the multiverse, now with the way that DC seems to be trying to get this point across, I think now the, the shackles have been completely removed and we're going to get some dynamite entertainment in the years to come, you know? And like, I mean, at, at this point, forget, you know, my whole two Batman thing. It's more like infinite Batmans now. now and we really don't even have to try to explain them that hard anymore. You know, I mean, because right now we could conceivably get a Joker 2 that perhaps gets a little more Batman in it, which I, again, I'd be surprised if it happens. But, you know, as per recent interviews, Todd Phillips seems interested in the idea of a sequel. 
you know, and he's mentioned he would love to see what a Batman set in the world that his Joker movie has created would be like. So let's say he wanted to explore that. You know, that is one Batman. Then there's the DCEU Batman that's going to be referenced but not shown in movies like Birds of Prey and The Suicide Squad. Then there's going to be the Matt Reeves Batman. And there's really just, there there can be an infinite number of Batman now. So I think we can officially retire the two Batman hashtag I was trying to get going. Because with this multiverse concept that Jim Lee and companies seem to be rallying behind, it's more like a million Batman. <laughs> And honestly, you know, b before you go and jump down my throat and, and, and think that I'm, I've read way too much into this Ezra Miller cameo and so on and so forth, you know, let's go back to that Variety interview because there was a little more that was interesting there too. Because Variety asked, you know, they said, combining the multiverse made it so there was only one version of each hero left. Does that mean that Miller's Flash no longer exists in the DC television world? On which Berlanti said, I will leave that question to Warner Brothers and DC. They have a wonderful vision for not just Ezra's Flash, but also the entire DC universe. Jim Lee is the man to talk to. So that, you know, that tells me that this is not just a little thing that happened in a vacuum, a cute little bit of meaningless fan service. This is all part of a grander scheme, a grander plan. So that's why my imagination is running away with me. And if it hasn't run away with you yet, I think it's only because you haven't been paying attention. So that's why I'm here. I'm here to bring these quotes through your ears, into your brain, so that you consider how seismically huge some of what's gone on these last few days is, has been, if you are a DC fan. You know, and there's more, by the way. You know, on the subject of Berlanti, you know, we also got an update on that Green Lantern series he's developing for HBO Max, which we also kind of seem to have gotten a glimpse of. Remember, at the end of episode five, when we're getting those glimpses of the other Earths, we also see Stargirl, which hasn't premiered yet, and that's that Jeff Johns live-action DC series of Stargirl. We also got a glimpse of, of what looked like the Green Lantern Corps, and we know that Berlanti's making Green Lantern. So here we go. You know, Speaking at the Television Critics Association press tour, HBO Max head of original content Sarah Aubrey indicated that the Green Lantern show will be vast in scope, stating it's going to span several decades and focus on two stories about Green Lanterns on Earth. There will also be, and this is separate of the quote, there will also be a focus on a third Green Lantern in space, and this is more of a quote again, going into the Sinestro story. Which, by the way, I wonder if that means that we're going to see Sinestro's turn, if that's what they mean. By going into the Sinestro story, if they're going to go with the idea that Sinestro was at first a lantern and we're going to see him transform bad and we make that part of the story of this, this is all really cool stuff, guys. So Berlanti has given us a tease of his Green Lantern show and now... We have news on the, you know, the, the, the scope and vastness of it. 
And Jim Lee has a wonderful vision, quote-unquote, for Ezra's Flash and also the entire DC Universe? I mean, this is amazing. And the storytelling possibilities are pretty much endless now. And while that's exciting from a creative standpoint and from a fan standpoint, for those of us who also like to look at things like business strategies and how all that works, you know, it's also very evident that, you know, Walter Hamada is doing a really good job in terms of making DC profitable again. Because remember, that was one of the big issues up until he got the job, that these movies were making tons of money at the box office, but Warner Brothers wasn't reaping the rewards. They were spending so much on these projects and investing so many international resources, getting them done, that even when they made almost $900 million, Warner Brothers would only see about $100 million of that. You know, so th that was one of the main things that Walter Hamada was asked to do. And guys, did you hear about what, hap what what seems to be happening with Birds of Prey? Birds of Prey, which comes out in just about a month, uh, has a reported budget of anywhere from seventy-five million to ninety-seven million. So any way you you, know, any way you slice it, it's under a hundred million. And if it is seventy-five, by the way, that's really notable because that means that it cost like one fifth of what BVS costs to make. Not that it should cost as much as BVS, but just it goes to show you, like, we've gone from 200 and 250 and $300 million DC movies to $75 million DC movies. But that's a good thing because it's apparently projected to open at anywhere from 49 million to 55 million when it opens next month. That means that this thing is going to make more than half its budget on just the first weekend alone and just domestically. So that means that this thing is going to go on to be super profitable, just like Shazam was, even though Shazam was not a big box office champion. And I really still feel that it could have done way better. I don't know what the issue was there. It might have just been you know, unfortunate timing. But still, that movie tripled its budget. So Warner Brothers was happy with that, not over the moon happy with it, but they were satisfied with it. And here we are, you know, Walter Hamada's winning streak is about to continue, you know, because under his watch, they've released Aquaman, Shazam, Joker, and here comes Birds of Prey looking like it's going to do some very respectable business. And, and you know how it works. If the word of mouth is excellent, as it has every, as I hope it will be, because uh, the movie does look pretty damn good. If the movie does really well, I mean, this thing has the the seal. The sky's the limit on Birds of Prey right now because of the way it speaks to the moment we're having culturally, because of the way it speaks to you know just general comic book movie. You know, it's going to speak to that demographic that loves to go check out Marvel and DC movies. It's going to speak to all kinds of people. So here we are at this very interesting time where creativity is about to be increased a thousandfold and costs are going down considerably and some very influential minds are putting their heads together to create an entire slate of awesome DC programming that's going to span the big screen and all different kinds of little screens. You know, from content on HBO Max to content on the DC Universe to obviously this Arrowverse stuff on the CW. Minds are getting together to make sure us DC fans are very well fed and dying of anticipation.
anticipation for months to come. So it's just, uh, it's an awesome time to be alive. And, and, I, and it, it's so nice to kind of have had this cool thing spring up at a time when I've been a little bummed. You know, this has given me something to kind of look into and obsess about and get excited about. I mean, guys, I got to see my Superman do a flyby again. I got to see my Superman fly above Earth and give me that reassuring smile into the camera that I grew up watching. I really needed that as a kid. And as it turns out, I could still use it now as a grown-ass 36-year-old man. <laughs> so uh, thank you, universe, for that. And also thank you, universe, for that Morbius trailer. <laughs> Because uh, if you recall, when I returned from hiatus in September, uh, one of the very first subjects that I was really kind of, you know, hammering home during the first couple of episodes back was the fact that I haven't been thrilled with where Marvel has taken Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man Far From Home didn't do a hell of a lot for me. And I honestly walked away from that feeling like if Sony were to take Spidey back, maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because they seem to be building out a fairly interesting and ambitious universe of Marvel characters on their own. Because remember, Sony owns the rights to not just Spidey, but a whole bunch of all, all the other characters that are part of his mythology. And at the time, I kind of made a big deal to point out, you know, like they've got Tom Hardy playing Eddie Brock as Venom on contract. They've got Andy Serkis there to direct a Venom 2 with Woody freaking Harrelson as Carnage. And it just strikes me that perhaps we should give this Sony universe a chance. And this Morbius trailer that just arrived totally kind of, you know, hit that nail on the head for me. Because, you know, I was just speaking a few episodes ago about how I love when trailers seem to be about one thing and then you find out they're another. You know, Morbius looks like a really intriguing story about a guy trying to cure an illness. You have Academy Award winner Jared Leto in there, and you know he's going to bring it. He brings it to everything he does. So you've got Jared Leto in there. You've got Jared freaking Harris. And you have this very interesting looking plot. It looks much darker, much more twisted and interesting and visceral than some of the stuff that I think we can expect from uh, films produced by another company. And he looks like a straight up scary anti-hero type. And those effects towards the end of the trailer, I, I totally got like flashbacks of when I first saw that Nightcrawler sequence at the beginning of X2, where he's sort of like teleporting and leaving those funky trails behind him and all that. It just, this movie looks like it has the potential to be really cool really different. It's got some great actors involved. And then they have that whole thing where, you know, from the studio that brought you Spider-Man Far From Homecoming, Spider-Man Far From Home, and Venom. Like now, okay, now that the plot is starting to thicken here, right? It looks like a dark, groovy vampire movie. 
But then you start realizing, oh, wait a minute, this has to do with Spider-Man. And then there's that little tiny glimpse of Spider-Man painted in graffiti on the wall with the word murderer over his face. And then there's the biggie, where at the end of the trailer, we get to see Michael Keaton back as Vulture in prison, seemingly, uh, having some conversation with Michael Morbius. And now people's heads are exploding because, you know, what a weird situation we're in here, right? I was talking about weird continuity, you know, hiccups in the DC universe these last couple of episodes. Well, let's talk about what Sony's pulling here with Spider-Man and Marvel. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty dumbfounding when you think about it. What Sony is able to get away with here by the mere fact that they own Spider-Man's film rights, they lent him to Marvel so that they could do the homecoming and the Civil War and everything that they've done in these last few years since reintroducing Spider-Man. So they've lent Spider-Man to Marvel in order to do that and give us a new Spider-Man to root for. And yet by maintaining ownership of him, they can still, you know, build out his world. And it's kind of like Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige and therefore Disney have no say in the matter. And that's crazy to think about. So here we go where here's a film that is clearly set in the same world as Spider-Man Far From Home and Homecoming but is also clearly set in the same world as Venom. And we're building to some sort of thing where these things are all going to overlap and interconnect in some way, shape, or form. And it's just, it's, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall when Kevin Feige saw the trailer. I mean, he probably knew in advance, but let's just, you know, act like he didn't. You know, I, I want to be in the room when he watched the trailer and saw Michael Keaton at the end. I just I would love to know what the look on his face was, how Marvel feels about this. The fact that Sony's like, well, listen, buddies, we know you're building out your whole thing there, but we're going to build out our whole thing here. And we're totally going to play up that it's all one big world. So good luck. You know, and unlike what's going on in D.C., where the multiverse can kind of explain certain things so far, Marvel hasn't really gone there. You know, and what's interesting, too, is the film that is supposedly going to take us there just lost its director. You know, the the Doctor Strange 2 just lost Scott Derrickson. So, and and remember, Doctor Strange 2 is supposed to be called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. So listen, I'm not going to try to get into get into why he left. It was quote unquote creative differences. To me, it strikes it strikes me as another one of these examples of the filmmaker wants to go one way, but the Uber producer, Kevin Feige in this case, wants to go another, and ultimately in a producer-driven franchise, the producer always wins. So it looks like Kevin Feige got his way and Scott Derrickson is out. So therefore, Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness, I don't know what's going to happen there exactly, how quickly they're going to replace, if they're going to try to adjust the story or anything. I, I, I Probably not, right? Because that's the funny thing, right? In a normal situation, if a film loses a director, a lot of things are now up in the air. You have to question all kinds of things. But when it's a Marvel Studios project, when it's a project that's been basically prepped 
and uh, on a course that was set by the Marvel Studios brass and not the filmmaker making it, now it just makes it like, all right, well, which filmmaker, you know, what, what director are they going to hire to execute their vision? You know, it kind of like takes some of the uh, sting off or even some of the intrigue, I should say, off of I wonder who they're going to get to replace Derrickson. You know, they're going to get whoever they can get to agree to just make the movie they want to make. And if it's anything like movies like Captain Marvel, uh, we, we may not even know who the director is and it's almost going to be irrelevant. The only time directors are ever seen to be relevant in Marvel movies are when it's for like an Avengers movie or when it's like, you know, Black Panther because Ryan Coogler brought a lot of credibility to that project. But in general, Marvel Studios doesn't really do a huge deal of mentioning the filmmaker or allowing the filmmakers to put their own unique stamp on these characters and mythologies. They just don't. So Scott Derrickson is out. Marvel, as of yet, doesn't really have a multiverse thing going on. Yet when Morbius comes out, we're going to be presented with a film that pretty much says this is in the same exact world as Spider-Man Homecoming and Tony Stark and Avengers Endgame and everything you've seen. This is all kind of a byproduct of that. And Marvel Studios can't do anything about it. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. But thankfully, I think Morbius looks damn good. And should the day come where Sony and Marvel do split up entirely and, and, and Tom Holland's Spider-Man is forced to only appear in the Sony universe, you know, when that day comes, I'm not that worried because I'm very intrigued by what Sony is building here. And look... I know Venom was not a great first step. It got some things right. It didn't deserve all the hate that it got. But that was still a fairly sort of weak, hollow movie, to me at least. So I know that as of yet, there's not a lot of reason to be confident in Sony's little Marvel corner. But I think there's reason to believe that Venom 2 is going to be an improvement that Morbius is going to be at least pretty good and that Sony is absolutely invested in making these movies as good as possible, where at least they're hiring top-of-the-line people to make them look and feel good and big and different in their own unique way. So here's hoping that Morbius is, is uh, three times the film Venom was, but either way, uh, I'm totally all in on seeing, even if it's just with morbid curiosity, seeing what Sony has in mind for ultimately bringing Tom Holland's Spider-Man face-to-face with Tom Hardy's Venom, with Jared Leto's Morbius, with Woody Harrelson's Carnage. I mean, I don't know how you couldn't be excited for that. And another trailer that just dropped is the one for Vin Diesel's Bloodshot movie. And I got to tell you, you know, I, I watched it just kind of out of general curiosity because it's a comic book movie. I've never read Bloodshot. I don't really know anything about him aside from, you know, artwork I've seen online. You know, I, I, he, he's been a very kind of in the peripheral sort of character for me. But, you know, I, I know vaguely what he's supposed to look like. And that's about it. Um, so I saw the trailer just to see, you know, I, just to see what the hell's going on there. And I got to tell you, I, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, it's got a really good cast. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Toby Kebbell. 
I'm a big fan of Guy Pierce. You have Asa Gonzalez in there who, listen, anyone from Baby Driver showing up, you're going to get a big thumbs up from me. Um, I think the concept is kind of cool. I, you know, since I don't know about the Bloodshot mythology, I don't know if they took some great huge liberties here. But the concept of the movie, at least, seems like this weird, you know, mashup of Universal Soldier mixed with Groundhog Day mixed with, you know, your typical sort of John Wick revenge tale of a man on a mission to kill the people who kill someone he loves. You know, so it seems like an interesting sort of genre mashup with a lot of like almost like supernatural sci-fi craziness going on with a pretty, you know, with a solid, with a good cast there around Vin Diesel. So, you know, I, I, I was just, I, I would file the Bloodshot trailer as being a pleasant surprise. I'm still probably not going to see it, but the trailer and the overall, you know, the, the, the forecast on this movie from my vantage point, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all a pleasant surprise that it's not a complete and odor, a, a complete and utter disaster. Because, you know, aside from the Fast and Furious franchise, Vin Diesel hasn't offered us a ton of epicness lately. You know, between that, uh, what is that one? The, the, the last Witch Hunter and uh, that horrible Triple X sequel. You know, Vin hasn't really had a lot of success outside of the Fast and Furious lately. So I really did walk into this Bloodshot trailer going, oh, God, is this going to be another horrendous looking Vin Diesel vehicle? And, uh, you know... It, it might not be. <laughs> and uh, all right, so today I'm going to wrap up on uh, another interesting little thing that came up this week. You know, Barbara Broccoli, who, you know, she's the, the, the mega producer behind the James Bond franchise. The Broccoli family has been there from the beginning. They are pretty much the authorities on all things 007 on film. You know, she was recently asked about, are we going to get a female Bond? Because, you know, in, the, in, the, in that trailer for No Time to Die, you know, we, we are introduced to that female 00 agent. And, you know, there has been talk in the past about a female 007 or a female James Bond or yada, yada, yada. Well, Broccoli puts all of that to rest. She says, he, as in James Bond, he can be of any color, but he is male. I believe we should be creating new characters for women, strong female characters. I'm not particularly interested in taking a male character and having a woman play it. I think women are far more interesting than that. When I read that, I started cheering because that's something that I feel has gotten lost in these last few years. We, in the push for you know, inclusion and diversity on the screen, there's been kind of like, you know, there, there, there have been different camps, different ways of approaching it. And one of the ways that seems to get the biggest backlash is when you take a character that's already been established as being one way for the last, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and then you suddenly change something about them. You change their gender, you change their ethnicity. In some cases, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, like Perry White becoming a black guy for Man of Steel doesn't really change anything. You know, Perry White is not intrinsically a white guy. It's not a very huge part of his backstory. You know, if, 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 if Perry White's backstory even really truly matters to a new Superman franchise, you know? So in some cases, it doesn't matter. 
In other cases, it ruffles a bunch of feathers. But through it all, I'm always just kind of sitting here on the sidelines going, wouldn't it be better to rather than saying that, okay, uh, Clark Kent is Puerto Rican now, let's just create a Puerto Rican Superman. You know what I mean? Not, a, a different character with his own story. Uh, it's, it, like what they did with Spider-Man. You know, Miles Morales is a completely separate character. That, to me, is the model to go by here. You know, and by the way, on the subject of Miles Morales, that's another reason why I say we should give the Sony Spider-Verse a little more uh, leeway here because they gave us that amazing animated, you know, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse movie. So these guys, especially if they're able to get, you know, um, Miller and Lord on board to help kind of shepherd some of their Sony Spider-Man projects, they could create some amazing stuff over there. But I digress. So... Rather than trying to take an established character and just change their gender or change their background or whatever, I think it's always more prudent to just create a new character. So Barbara Broccoli saying that I think is huge because you're right. There's no reason to make James Bond, you know, Jane Bond. How about just give us a new epic awesome, badass 00 agent, make her 008 or 009 or 006 even, but make her a different 00 designation, not a female Bond, just another character who works for MI6, who is amazing at their job and has, you know, and, and th that is the only real connection to James Bond. It's not meant to be a gender bent James Bond. She would just work in an MI6 or James Bond has retired. The legend of Bond is no more. He's no longer on the job and now there's a female super spy who's kind of the star of the agency. I think that sort of thing makes a lot more sense than just trying to change someone's skin color out of nowhere. You know, same thing with like, there's all these reports about Michael B. Jordan wanting to do Superman. And honestly, for me, I would much rather see him play and be the first ever live action Calvin Ellis Superman than just act now like he's Clark Kent. I don't, th I find that to be the less interesting option. I would much rather see Calvin Ellis than a black Clark Kent. Give me something new. And on top of that, it gives him the availability or the possibility to really make the character his own, to build something new from scratch without any connection to what, you know, some other Clark Kent that other people might be attached to. And in general, I'm only using this as one very specific example. But since it has come up a lot, this whole it even came up on the Vigilante 1939 podcast when I appeared on it last week, which if you, if you haven't checked out yet, was a very good discussion about the merits of A Man of Steel 2 versus a release of the Snyder Cut and which one is more important and more prescient and should be the priority right now. Um, but, you know, it came up on there that, you know, Michael B. Jordan as Clark Kent would be exciting. And I just... I think there's no need for that. I'd much rather Calvin Ellis. And it sounds like Barbara Broccoli, who is not making a Superman movie, but is a mega producer in Hollywood, agrees with me. And I hope that Hollywood takes note of that mindset. I love that she said, you know, I, I think women are far more interesting than that. Because that's true, too. You know, it it, it almost cheapens the, the, the female James Bond if she just, she's just Jane Bond now. 
you know, give us a brand new character with a whole new starting point and own, you know, her own name, her own heritage, her own everything, and build her up from scratch rather than just trying to replace something that's been around forever in the pop culture mindset. Give, add something. Don't replace or subtract something is my point. But that's my time for today. So uh, wish me luck, fam. Uh, Before I go, I've got a big meeting tonight uh, because, you know, in another life, I wanted to be a creative artist, not just a commentator on the creations of others, but someone who actually produces things for others to enjoy and comment on. And tonight I have a chance to do that. Tonight I'm, I'm sitting down with the board of a local theater because they're interested in bringing me in as a director and I very much want that job. So let's just hope I don't screw it up, fingers crossed. And by the way, if this works, you know, it means I could have some very exciting news soon, announcing some really cool production of a beloved musical here in New York, because that's what we're specifically going to be discussing tonight. So yeah, wish me luck, fam. Until next week. Keep loving what you love and keep nurturing the part of you that has hope for a brighter tomorrow. Life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.